Mummy Matters. Hi everyone, welcome to the second podcast of Mummy Matters. This is Ruth and Pam, your hosts, and we'll be talking about parenting styles today. What kind of parent are you? Is your discipline approach effective? How can your parenting style stimulate your child's critical thinking skills? So there are so many words to describe parenting these days. Like respectful parenting, attachment parenting, tiger parenting, child-centered parenting, permissive parenting, and even dolphin parenting. I mean, I could list this all day long. Yeah, I mean, it would take us all day just to define these various styles of parenting, let alone discuss them. So what I've planned for us to do today is discuss just the four key aspects of parenting, which overlap onto different parenting styles. They are affectionate responsiveness, discipline, parent practices, and communication. So right, and if you are curious to find out what kind of parenting style they are naturally inclined to, so head on to our quiz. Um, you can find the link below or go to our website www.mumsclub.sg. So take the result with a pinch of salt because there are certain aspects of your culture, your community or your environment that may not be accounted for. Right, so the first aspect, affection and responsiveness. So this relates to how well the parent expresses affection to the, and comfort to the child and how the parent responds to the child's needs and wants. Um, affection in an Asian society is complicated. There's a lot of emphasis placed on xiao, which is filial piety. So when our parents told us to do something, debating or discussing it was not acceptable. So whatever your elders or parents say, you just have to swallow your pride and respect it. Looking back on my growing up days, the language of love then was not something obvious. Yeah, I remember my dad was really angry with the mess in the house. Then he would just pick up anything within his reach and just throw them down the throat to show his displeasure. I mean, <gasps> there was no explanation thereafter. But once he cooled down, I mean, of course, we have to, you know, clean it up and everything. Then he would buy us ice cream. So, yeah. Nowadays, however, I do see a lot more parents becoming more aware of the importance of being more upfront in addressing issues and communicating in a more direct manner. Yes, and the parents these days are also a lot more open and receptive to displays of affection with their children, which is great, you know. I mean, I feel totally awkward kissing my dad on the cheek, but I do that to my kids every day, and I definitely see a difference between the relationship I have with my parents vis-a-vis the relationship I have with my kids. So for us... Uh, who come from more conservative families like mine, I'll admit it's a step out of our comfort zone, but consciously making an effort every day through small little actions like hugging, kissing, greeting, spending time together. I mean, all these small little things count. And um, another thing that parents struggle with is responding adequately to the needs and wants of our kids without cultivating a sense of entitlement. Uh, so the question is, how do you balance the need for affection and affirmation versus setting limits on how demanding your child is allowed to be? Well, for me, with four children and running my business, I do feel a lot of mom guilt. But when it's time to work, I mean, work has to be done, right? So I make it a point to sit everybody down as watching each other trying to complete some parts of their work would spur them on. So we leave no one behind. So, I mean, 
nobody likes to do homework, right? So, so in a way, I provide them with affection and affirmation by encouraging them and providing them to do work. But I made it clear when we do work, I mean, there's no funky business. You know, this is a really great tip for those dealing with multiple children. For me, providing affection has never been a problem except when it came to the tantrums. You know, I, I read lots of books and articles about dealing with tantrums to prepare myself, but I was still totally shocked by the real thing. But first, let's talk about the science behind tantrums. Miriam Bisham, neuropsychologist and director of the University de Montreal's ABC's Developmental Neuropsychology Laboratory, explains that a two-year-old child has billions of neurons but very little myelin, which is a white matter that facilitates processing. So what this means is that there can be a significant delay in how the child processes what has happened. So this can be made worse when the child is overstimulated. They experience the world at the same rate we do. They feel things at the same time. They see, they feel, they touch. But their brains take a long more time to unpack this information. So this is a huge part of the reason why many studies have discussed the negative impacts of too much screen time or stimulation on early child development. It's also one of the reasons why baby wearing experts recommend having a baby face inwards instead of outwards. So many children, my own included, display signs of distress much later in the day after prolonged exposure. So such as night terrors or emotional outbursts or temper tantrums, you know, it's the body's natural way of releasing this sensory overload. So for us adults, when the trigger for the tantrum is something totally ridiculous, it is really understandable when the adults are in a state of shock. So, you know, there are these viral posts on Facebook about how ridiculous tantrums can get. So, you know, like you pour the milk wrong, the day is gone, or, you know, they can't swim in the middle of winter, things like that. It was so crazy, but that's just how children are. So, I found it a real struggle to show affection at these times because I did not feel like it was acceptable for me to validate her actions and give her comfort. Like the day she toppled the flood, oh my goodness, you know, there was flood flying all over and then she was, you know, I was so shocked. And we were in our small little Airbnb and we were all alone. And it's not my house, you know, it's someone else's house, you know. So I knew I had to go and clean up. So that's what I wanted her to do. I wanted her to stay still so that mommy can clean. But no, she was inconsolable and flipping her body and bawling. And the flower was flying and flying and flying. I was like, oh, that day was so tough. So it was really crazy. So what do you actually do? I think at that point, I'm so angry and frustrated. I couldn't go and do what I wanted to do, which is to clean up. Then she was, you know, making an even bigger mess. So I'm a little bit ashamed because I tried to just, you know, manhandle her and bring her to the toilet and then like put her in safely, lah, in a place where the flour can fly but I can clean up. But she went into koala lockdown mode. And I think every parent knows what is koala lockdown. They use their four limbs, they cling onto you and they're not going to let go. So I gave up. Lah. And then I just waited for her to calm down. It was about 30 to 40 minutes. And uh, yeah, I, I had to wait it out. Lah. So, you know, I at that point of time, I had already read and understood that my role as a parent then, as her external emotional regulator, was to provide comfort and safety. But at the same time, I was struggling with the practical reality of cleaning up and a dilemma about whether my comfort would indicate to her that I condone her actions. 
So it's time like this when I found that balancing affection and discipline to be a really tough choice. Yeah, I mean children, and they are. I mean children are always changing, and at certain time, especially at you know certain milestones, they just cannot regulate their emotions. So the way they express themselves can be very extreme, from rolling to frenzy running, screaming, crying. I mean, they, oh, it's a whole new world, and I mean confusing world for them, you know. So and also for us parents. So there was once when I'm brought my daughter to a water playground and knowing that it's pretty late and it's almost night time. So um I will let I me mean, with mutual consensus I changed her, left that place. So on the way back, she just went like, oh I want to go back to the playground. Uh, then I went like, oh baby, no, it's time to go off. You said that no and we are going to somewhere even more fun, right? Then upon hearing the no, upon hearing that no you know, she just started crying and then wailing and then in the middle of the train station where I cannot put her anywhere, anywhere quiet or you know, then there's everybody that's walking to and fro and uh, I couldn't even hide my embarrassment. So after that, I went like, why was she like that? Then I realized that it could be a mixture of emotions, feelings, where she wanted to play and yet she's tired, so she couldn't express herself properly then. Yeah, I mean, you're not talking about embarrassment. I remember my friends, I mean, my parents saying shame, shame to me when I was a kid. You got that, right? Yes. Yeah. But uh, I totally didn't get it at the time. And actually, I don't think I ever got it. To me, when I hear that word, I know I'm supposed to stop crying. So I almost said that to Natalie myself when I realized that, hey, is it right for me to teach her that she has to shut down her emotions just because others are going to look at like two seconds and then move on with their life? I mean, why should she be so conscious of others? What she needs right now is to cry out and relieve herself from the pressure. So what am I teaching her exactly? So that's when I paused and I self-regulated myself. So, you know, in our hierarchical society, it's not surprising when adults feel that children require little or no explanation because, you know, as parents, you don't feel you're accountable to your children. This is not the traditional mindset. If a child demonstrates so-called bad behavior, others feel this is unacceptable because then they think that your parents cannot control your kid. Yeah. So, right. I mean, nowadays, because there are a lot more public discussion on issues such as mental health, self-care, self-esteem. So I do believe modern parents are more willing to place greater emphasis on their children's feeling. So this then extends to our next key point of today's discussion, discipline. So I always believe that they have to feel how it feels to be in the same situation so that they are able to learn from it. So for example, if the boys were to hurt one another, <laughs> You know, so I would, I would get the bully, you know, and then I would do the same to the bully and ask whether, he, how he feels, you know. So then, how he feels, so by doing this, I give him an opportunity to know and to feel how is it like to be bullied. So it would encourage maybe empathy and hopefully they will be able to practice it too. So for Bella, she understands this pretty fast. So, but for the boys, it takes a while. Um, I mean, because no child is the same, so just have to be patient and gradually they will just get it. Yeah, I mean, thinking about how you deal with four kids, I, 
it makes me feel so overwhelmed. And I mean, with, with just one kid then, I had such a tough time experimenting how best to communicate with her when I wanted to discipline her. I smacked her, she smacked herself, then she laughed at me. I shout, then she dissolved into inconsolable bawling. So eventually what worked when she was a little bit older was the quiet corner because she calmed down and then she can talk to me about why she acted the way she did. So on my discipline journey, I felt it wasn't that smooth. And at the beginning, all my discipline was always reactive. I only react when there's negative behavior. What I didn't realize then is that this was a very narrow focus method. So what I've gradually moved towards for both kids now, and I've personally found this very effective, is purpose-driven discipline, where I proactively guide and communicate my expectations to my children. So establishing this clear channel of communication with my kids has eliminated a lot of uncertainties and put us both on the same page. Yeah, so discipline is really, really a great stressor in the parent-child relationship. So, but like what I mean, what you said, it became an opportunity for quality bonding as well. So discipline can also stress the parent-caregiver relationship. So I'm like the discipline mistress in the house. Ah. So I say no to almost anything and everything. And it just comes to a point where they just don't ask me and they just go straight to their daddy or even grandparents for things that uh, they want without second thought, you know. So obviously there's a strain um, when caregivers and parents are not united. But I firmly believe that it's our duty to let them understand why no, you know. Mm. So I try my best to disconnect the idea that doing the right thing will get you a reward. For one, I don't have all the money in the world. So secondly, the concept of being honest, kind, like holding door for others. I mean, there are excellent behaviours that should come natural from from any one of us, mm. right? So being a good person should be by default, not only when there's a prize to be won. So our experts have created a step-by-step -step guide to help parents navigate through and understand the most effective and positive discipline strategies. So at the same time, we'll be so happy to hear what parenting strategies you have in dealing with your child. So share with us your stories in our Facebook group. Yes, and uh, when we talk about positive discipline strategies, these are discipline methodologies that child development psychologists believe will help your child develop into a mature, independent and self-reliant individual. Certain discipline strategies, while seeming to be immediately effective, can actually be very traumatizing and result in chronic self-blame behaviors and the tendency to self-immerse in escapism in adolescence and even adulthood. So let's talk about the science behind this. The prefrontal cortex is one of the last brain regions to develop, not just in humans, but in mammals as well. It is only fully developed when we reach the age of 25. The bulk of the development, however, does take place in childhood. So during certain stages, the child actually looks to the parent or caregiver to help regulate his or her emotions. Since it's completely unethical for researchers to go around triggering tensions in all our children for their research, uh, they decided to scare some mice. So what they noticed is that the 
mice, when they experience an event that was a stressor, the presence of positive parental cues dampen the elevation in stress hormones. Conversely, when the parent expressed defensive behaviors or heightened negative responses, the stress levels were amplified. So bring this back to children, when children witness their parents responding negatively or are aggressively punish themselves, it overwhelms their fight or flight nervous system and they find it much harder to calm down or in some cases their brain just chooses to shut down you know, and block out the trauma. So this can have long-lasting impacts with amplified stress levels whenever the individual is thinking about or going through stressful situations in adolescence and adulthood. Basically, you're training their brain how to react when they are being stressed. So children also learn behavior from adults and they can display more aggressive or negative behaviors when dealing with their own stress. So Nathan actually had an ex-classmate who would hit everybody every time he met with an obstacle. So what he was doing was mimicking his parents' method of discipline because he saw that as how they got what they achieved, which is his obedience. So Nathan went to go and confront him saying, Smacky, only mommy can do, you know, when there is a good reason. We cannot. So when the teacher told me what she said, I was so relieved because I knew I had taught her well. My discipline wasn't perfect and I don't think it ever will be, but at least she understood that hitting others indiscriminately was not acceptable. And when I disciplined her, it's because I had good reason to do so. So the takeaway here is that discipline can be a positive parent-child event. So as parents, the responsibility is on us to decide how best handle the situation and adapt it to the child. So for some children, raising your voice can be more frightening than just coming and spanking. So of course, parents, please don't be too soft or be a pushover in fear of traumatizing their children. I mean, yeah, that's problematic itself, right? So we can be firm, but at the same time, knowing what developmental phase your child is in, managing affection with discipline, get the point across, but at the same time, let your child know that your affection and love has not changed. So that brings us to our next key aspect of parenting, parent practices. So parent practices are concepts and actions that are consistently emphasized to children. So this is going to sound totally Singaporean, but I actually use the practice of sorry, no cure with my kids. So, sorry, no cure? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a very gangster alien face, but I really like the concept that simply saying sorry doesn't undo any damage that has already been done. So what I emphasize on my kids is that lip service doesn't fix things. And I follow up with, so what good actions do we do now? I see. So what you want your children to recognize is the consequences of their action, then follow up with rectifying the issue at hand? Yeah, I mean, in my mind, it's the three R's. So recognize what you did wrong, take responsibility, then initiate actions to redeem or resolve the issue. So we, we did come across one stumbling block when she didn't accept her friend's apology in school because she said, sorry, no cure, you know? She basically mimicked me. Lah. But uh, so at that moment, I realized that while this is a positive parenting practice I developed with my child, it wasn't valid in the real world. 
So it's a principle and concept that I personally stand by in my personal interactions with others, but this is not something I can demand of others. So that took me a while to explain to her. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think what you did, teaching her sorry no cure was a great concept, but where you may have gone wrong was missing out on the explanation about how mommy and daddy had different standards from the rest of the world. So my problem was feeding time. I mean, uh, yeah, it just varies from screen time to how much food. Then, I mean, the list just goes on. Uh. So my rule was they have to try the vegetable and at least eat three mouthful of it. So of course, after they finish it, they are rewarded lah. So, but when I was hosting play dates at my house, I had such a difficult time explaining to my kids why their friends don't get scolded as much by their mommy and daddy when they didn't finish their vegetable during mealtime. Or why other children finish their vegetable but their mommy never praised them like how I did. So, it was a bit like, uh, huh? Mm. I mean, kids being kids, right? Mm. So I, uh, they, they, they would just ask anything and everything which put us in a very awkward position. I mean, uh, I'm really curious to hear more from other parents. What parent practices do you use at home that you found to be effective? Or share with us your funny stories. We'd love to hear from you at our Facebook group. So now, let's talk about communication. We know that Children love to mimic adults, so every child does that in your play, be it pretending to do household chores, or teaching, or disciplining their toy friends, or even working on the computer. Now, in the same way, children naturally mimic their parents' reaction when they interact in a social setting. So, and I think every parent knows this, children are very egocentric. So they can pay full attention when it's something that excites them, um, but they just cannot be bothered if it's like, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing how quickly they pick up the various nuances of communication like body language, eye contact, tone. And in our next podcast, we'll actually talk about how mask wearing has now affected this developmental phase for very young children. But that's for the next podcast. Uh, this podcast, we're going to talk about how listening can contribute to a child's confidence. So, you know, Prince William and Kate Middleton, whenever you see photos of them interacting with their children, they're always kneeling down and making eye contact. So this fosters open and intimate communication with their kids. So kneeling is hard for my parents because of their age, but I tell my helper to do it with my children because if the Duchess of Cambridge can do it, then so can she and so do I. So I've really seen it firsthand how it really fosters better communication with my kids. They make eye contact, they talk to me more and now my parents try to do it too when they can. Yep, so I also feel, especially very young children, those around two years old, they are like struggling to speak and it takes so much time and effort, you know, just to blurt something out. So, I mean, it's also very difficult for us to understand, yeah, yeah right? So there was once, you know, Isaac was down with a viral fever, fever and he has to miss school for more than a week. So after cooping at home for the longest time, he told me he wanted to go to zoo. I'm like, hmm? Zoo? I said, then he said, no, no, no. Daddy, go work. I said, go zoo. So I thought like, yeah, he wanted some fun. Then recently when I, when I look back at the video, I just realized that he meant school. <laughs> so yeah, the takeaway here for parents is 
you don't take time to listen to your child, it might seem unimportant, it might seem insignificant, but at that moment, it's a huge step for your child to master all the courage and, to, and the confidence to speak up. So do take note of your body language. Face your child and make eye contact. So even if you don't understand, just, just be open. So it will make a huge difference in how your child feels and whether they choose to communicate with you, you know, in future. So, yeah. Yeah, and bear in mind that a child is basically a blank slate until you begin to colour their perception and understanding. It's very life-changing, you know. So, you know, when I was pregnant with my first and ex-colleague I wasn't particularly close to, she especially made an effort to come to my desk and share with me that she went through a very stressful time with her son who wasn't talking at age 3. So initially, she believed he had, he had a learning disability. However, it turns out that because she's a single mom working full-time for long hours and his sole caretaker, her mom, rarely spoke. So her son basically didn't speak because he had very little exposure to speech. So multiple studies on early childhood literacy, which we'll be covering in detail, in the next season of our podcast, provide a proof that early exposure is critical in helping children develop their literacy abilities. In 1995, two researchers from the University of Kansas did a longitudinal study on 42 families, and they found a close correlation between the number of words spoken by parents to children by age 3 and their academic success at age 9. So in 2018, the Language Learning Lab of Stanford University, led by Professor Anne Flanot, discovered that a language-rich environment is evident in infants as young as 18 months. And the size of a child's vocabulary at age 4 is closely correlated with the child's reading comprehension abilities at age 9. So I was very convinced that I had to talk and communicate to my children early on and as silly as I felt, you know, being alone at home, the only one talking to your kid who's not talking back to you, you know, like, let's go and bathe. Oh, mommy's turning on the shower now. Look, I'm putting salt on my hands. You feel silly, but I really made the effort to narrate my activities and maintain eye contact even when they were infants. Yeah, that's very true. There's also, I mean, there's also the argument against baby talk. Yeah, so baby talk. <clears throat> baby talk is really unnecessary because every time you use it, you're essentially teaching the kid to speak that way, which is not what we want, right? So that's not what society wants to. However, what I do practice at home is consistent repetition of simple commands that they can understand and react to. So during my granny time, they will use the word and then for meal or aunt for sleep. Then my caregiver actually used these terms too. And I was like, so I, I I had to be consistent to choose the terms and then to gradually change it with proper words to ease the transition. I mean, the good thing about establishing routine or common understanding, such as using the same phrasing for certain events like how your granny did, is that it provides young children with a sense of stability and security because they know what's coming next. So even small consistent practices such as giving your child a 5-minute heads up before playtime is over, it's a type of conditioning but at the same time, it's clear communication to your child. We are moving on to the next activity. And the child is better prepared and able to accept it. So this is actually a form of proactive discipline. You train and encourage good behavior and communicate your expectations clearly to your children. 
Yes, so another aspect of communication that parents don't fully realize is the need for diversity. So being exposed to wider diversity of speech pattern, vocabulary and language is very beneficial for young children below three. So unfortunately, I mean, oh sorry, sorry, it enhances their ability to catch on to nuances of different languages. So unfortunately, due to COVID, most of us were pretty much trapped in our home, so I have to resort to TV to give the children you know, exposure to the outside world. So we will be talking about parenting during COVID-19 over uh, in our next podcast, yes. And that was a really tough time for all of us. I mean, but also it's a valuable family bonding experience. Yeah. yeah, I mean, my favorite means of communication with my children is reading. So I was a little bit offended when a study from the Murdoch's Children Research Institute based in Australia found there's a greater impact on a child's literacy abilities when the father, not the mother, reads to the child. So the researchers did acknowledge that fathers who had the time to read to their children tended to have more positive interactions with them generally. But noted there's a distinct difference in how fathers read as opposed to mothers. So mothers tend to focus on everyday questions and vocabulary, whereas fathers tend to ask questions that stretch a child's imagination, which is essential for abstract and critical thinking. Hmm. It's how it stimulates the brain differently. So our expert from Mums Club have come up with a simple guide on different ways to communicate with your child and to stimulate their observation, thinking, communication skills. So please check it out on our website, www.mumsclub.sg. Well, that's all the time we have today for today's podcast. So thank you for tuning in and we look forward to you reaching out to us. So let us know what you'd like us to talk about or share your experiences with us. So next week, we will be talking about parenting with COVID. So how have social distancing affected the various aspects of childhood development? Are hand sanitizers safe for all our children to use? So we will share all this and more on the next episode of Mummy Matters. So just in case you haven't followed us on both Spotify and Facebook, please do so. So till then, stay safe, stay sane.